Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Believe Knicks podcast. Matthew Miranda joined by Stacey Patton. The Knicks are off on Super Bowl Sunday. Um, next game will be tomorrow when they host Sacramento. A lot of stuff going on, but kind of not. It kind of feels like it's very wintry, where there's just like cold, dead shit going on in Nick World. Um, let's talk about that cold, dead shit, Stacey Patton. Let's start with um, the recent, at least Nick Twitter drama of does Julius Randle really love his teammates? Can you really love your teammates if you don't? Give the man a hand when he's down. So a lot of hype about a clip of him not picking up. I think it was Obi yeah. in the last game. One of the clips was Obi, and one of the clips was was um. Were they both? I think they were both Obi. I only saw one. I don't know. Someone dug up another one from like months ago to like reaffirm <laughs> that Randall is a jerk. Um. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like um. You know, it's one of those things where, like, you know, if I'm, like, walking in the house and when I was a kid, I remember, like, you know, if there was, like, a crumb or something on the ground and I, like, didn't, like, spot it and pick it up immediately, my dad would be like, why are you walking by it? Pick it up, right? It seems like that kind of thing where it's, like, yeah, that's careless and, like, it's not ideal. You would like him to go give his teammate a hand, but he can be aloof and he can be preoccupied. He can be talking to the ref, like... It doesn't mean he's this evil monster that like wants to see Obi stay on the ground. Um, I mean, it's he's playing poorly. <laughs> he's not playing well. Uh, he's in his own head. Um, I I think that he's shown. Um, I don't want to comment on people's mental toughness, but I'll say it doesn't look like he's reacted as well. You know, the Australian Open final was just this morning, and um, you know. It, that's a sport where you can really see fortitude and, and kind of that strength when things aren't going your way. And the guy who won is a guy named Rafa Nadal, who's probably perhaps the greatest player of all time. In my opinion, he is. Um, and he faced a younger guy who's more talented at this stage in his career in Daniil Medvedev, but um, is a little more mercurial. And you saw that um, Rafa had kind of the, the fortitude and, and I think conditioning goes a long way there, but that's really what's going on with Julius. Like that's why people are mad. Like adding these clips is just like, like I don't know. It's like you don't have to go for the character assassination on top of it. It's fine to say he's not playing well. He's after last year that looks like it was maybe a flash in the pan. It might be time to move on. All of those are fair takes, um, but you know I don't think I don't know what the just looking up those clips really does for you. Uh, but yeah, that's my opinion on that. Yeah, there's this there's this brewing little like. I feel like there's this little, like, Salieri Mozart Nick crowd that wants to, like, prove that somehow Randall is is in on some plot to, like, keep Obi down. Um, I'm not bothered by it at all because I I definitely don't track how many times teammates do or don't help each other up. Um, And I would say the the one concern, we might get into this later, um, the one concern that I'm having with Randall... It's too dumb. Sorry, it's too strong to call it a concern. But someone pointed out, like, if you remember last season, I think around the All Star break, maybe or after he was named to the All Star team, this or maybe right before this article came out, I think in the Athletic by Randall, and it was this kind of first person account of how he had taken the booze and the pressure of the first season. He wrote one in the Players' Tribune, too. There were two. There was the Athletic one, I think, was with his trainer. And it went very deep on his training, and it it did mention the boost thing. But um, the Players' Tribune was where Julius himself wrote it. Yeah. So, lovely story, happy ending. Like, player comes to New York, faces adversity, learns how to turn it into a positive, happy ending. And someone was pointing out that, like, now you have this very new chapter after it. And like I, I, like I said, I don't think it's strong enough to call it a concern, but I think the human reality of, of you know, how Randall's mental, sorry, I guess the wrong, the wrong thing to say, just it's been a tough year and you don't know ever like how that affects someone. Um, 
So I just, I just, I don't know. I, I don't have the word for what I, beyond saying it's interesting to think of that correlation between there was this article and here we are. I don't have any other judgment or thought on it. I just thought it was an interesting, oh. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, um, I think that article put to bed any, bre- or put to bed any thoughts that it was a work ethic issue. I don't think that's the issue with, with Julius. Um, I think it put aside, like a lot of people are like, he doesn't look like he gives a shit. That's kind of, I think that that article and is like, if anything, it seems to be the opposite problem. Like he's just cares too much, right? He's not handling, um, you know, he needs to be a little bit more stoic or whatever or sanguine. Um, that might help him. Um, no, I mean, I think that it, it's like, I don't think any of those are the things I think he wants to be the star in New York. I think, you know, all the stuff that happened with the fans is his own frustration coming out. Um, but I mean, all players get frustrated. I think the biggest issue for him is that, um, you know, he's not a great shooter and he's not a great processor, right? So when he gets doubled, he often, he often makes the right pass, but he has to jump in the air. Um, it's not, you know, if you watch a LeBron pass out of a double or certainly someone like Jokic, right. And that, those are elite guys, but that level of processing for someone who handles the ball as that much isn't there which was fine last year because it was good enough. And because he was shooting the ball as well, it didn't matter. But now that he, if he can't shoot at that level, he can't really be um, that kind of star. And that's, that's, and then, yeah, I mean, I think he's struggling to adapt to that reality too. We all are. And I mean, that's really, it's as simple as that, you know? Do you think that's something that could change with reps? Because it's not like, like LeBron, again, you know, unique comparison, but like some people come into the league from day one, lottery picks, who they're given the ball and they're given the reps to, and they get to see all the double teams and all the defenses. <clears throat> Randall didn't really have that until he came to the Knicks because on the Lakers and the Pelicans, he was never like the, the lead option. Do you think, but you're right, like you see sometimes he makes the right pass, but you see that he just, he doesn't seem to have the immediate, like, okay, this goes here, this goes. It doesn't ping around when he gets it. Do you think that can change with reps? Or do you think that's something that either you come in with it or yeah, you don't? Um, I do not think it's just something that you come in with that you don't. Um, I think one example of a guy who's really improved on that end is Donovan Mitchell. Um, Donovan Mitchell and Devin Booker, I think, are both examples of this. Um, if you watch the Jazz play now, and if you watch when Mitchell came in the league, the difference is when he came in the league, he was mostly a pull-up shooter who could get to the rim and throw down dunks as well. Um, you know, like a poor man, Zach Levine. Now, if you watch some of the passes he makes, they are like point God passes, right? He's really improved. Devin Booker came in as an off-ball shooter. He became, um, and again, it's, it is the passing difference is there. These guys are processing at a higher level. In fairness, they're also put in slightly better situations. Um, and in terms of forwards, guys who, like, I think that would be the better, the only thing I can think of is, like, I think a lot of people th- talked about Randall kind of becoming a Kawhi type in terms of his style. Um, you know, the way he played, right? A lot of post-ups, you know, mid-range contested shots. Um, but even Kawhi, I think, came in with better processing because uh, he wasn't like LeBron on offense. Like, he wasn't going to get six, seven assists a game. But um, I think he made quick decisions when he had to, right? And because that processing was there on in the defense event, um, where Kawhi was an elite defender. In college, Donovan Mitchell was an elite defender. Um, Booker, from having to play off ball, had to know how to hunt spots. Um, so I, I know that's not a great answer. I think it can be developed. I think asking a 26-year-old at this stage in their career in an offense that plays slow um, – and lacks other pieces is pretty tough. And if it, and for all of those players that I talked about, like Devin Booker was very painful, right? Um, they were bad, and they gave him reps on ball. I think Schwinn and Prez did a good pout on this um, when talking about R.J. Barrett. Um, but, you know, that's the cost of giving that player reps is that in the short term, it's going to be very uh, <laughs> unpleasant to watch as they figured out. You mentioned post-ups and Randall, and I was just curious if you've thought this. Because when I watch the games, I feel that one of the biggest differences on the offensive end with him from last season to this is that 
he's posting up way less. Like last year, the these baseline turnaround fadeaways were kind of a staple of, of his his offense. And I feel like, and I don't know if it's because defenses are maybe playing him different after the Atlanta series. I feel like more defenses this year are playing him with smaller guys when he catches it out. Um, they get the free throw line extended rather than with like fours. But do you do you do you watch do you do you get that sense that he's not posting up as much? And if if so, yeah. So I just why? looked it up um, in terms of post ups per game. So it's not normalized for minutes or anything. Um, he is right now three, four, five, six, seventh. Um, he's tied for seventh with um, someone named Christoph Porzingis. Um, behind Joel Embiid, Nikola Jokic, Anthony Davis, Valanciunas, Cat, and Vucevic. So um, now Embiid is by far at ten point five. Jokic is at eight point nine. Just to look at last year, sorry, just so we can get some data behind this. Last year is actually pump, um, posting up slightly less. Um, what I huh. would like to see, and I think you hinted at this a little bit, is how often I think that. The difference between posting up at 20 feet or 18 feet and 10 feet for him is all the difference in the world. Um, and I mm-hmm. would be curious to see how often what that disparity is. Um, no, I don't think it feels like he's posting up less. Um, I think like, I mean, I've talked about this before, but he's actually, his shot profile, he's tried to change it. People have talked about, a lot of emphasis has been placed on, I think um, Frank Barrett and Jeff Rasmussen wrote an article about how a lot of this struggle has been trying to adapt to Walker and Fournier. And I think that's overblown. I think a lot of it was just real. I think he realized that last year's success came from a shooting profile that was not going to be sustainable. So you can't really get on him for taking bad mid-range shots because he's taken those down. Um, He's up to 25% of his shots at the rim. He's taking 33% of his shots at three, more than last year. Um, I think... You know, where I think that there might be more of an issue is that um, he's really reduced that reduction in the mid range has come more in the 10 to 16 area, where last year he took 20% of his shots there uh, and hit 43% of them. This year he's only taking um, 13% of his shots there, but the 10 to 16 range where he was worse last year and now has just really gotten bad at 34%, that's still about 14% of his shots, which isn't much lower than last year. Um, so he's reduced. I think that that does matter. Like the 10 to like being at 10 to 16 or 10 to 12 feet, that difference is important. And that's where I think he's had less. Uh, and that's a variety of things, right? If they guard you with a smaller person and shade the big, um, it could be tough to create against that because you don't want to put the ball on the floor and, you know, you can get called for offensive foul if you try to back them down. Um, I do think, yeah, like teams would prefer to put a, um, a quicker defender on him and take their risk with, you know, him going out of control rather than letting a, a you know, a slower footed big get blown by like John Collins doesn't work. Atlanta's the team that figured this out, right? Because they put John Collins on him for most of the season. Mm-hmm. Then they started putting Bogdanovich and Hunter on him who are quicker defenders and could funnel him towards the help. Um, so it's all of those things. And to be honest, yeah, like I think he's taken the right steps in, it, it wasn't just to adjust for Fournier and Walker. Uh, I think he realized that he needed to be, uh, he needed to get to the rim more and take more threes. But the shots have been falling. Um, they've been able to push him out. So even the mid range shots he's taking are not as good looks. And I think Atlanta kind of put the blueprint out on him. And um, and you're seeing that. Um, and uh, it's unfortunate to watch, but um, that's what's happening. There's been a lot of unfortunate to watch recently. The Knicks have lost six of seven, but. We're here to give you the other side of the story. So we're going to look at some good things. What are good things happening right now in Knicks Nation? And I'm going to give you maybe the classic Nick one, which is I take it as a good thing that I think there is a standard in place now that there hasn't been like in a decade. Like the Knicks are 23 and 27 and people are furious, like furious they want. To change half the roster, I've already seen people are done with Thibodeau. Thibodeau doesn't know what he's doing. And obviously, you know, at different seasons in the past, the team would struggle somewhat deliberately. The Knicks were trying to maximize their draft position or they were moving off of, you know, bigger veterans and were just trying to kind of start over. But 
there is something nice about a team that has basically hovered around 500 for a year and a half, over a year and a half now, pissing off a lot of its fans by not doing more. Whether that's fair or not, just just the difference of feeling that rather than like just waiting till May for the draft lottery and like nothing else all season really mattering, I take as a like, um, some of these are more of a stretch than others, but I'm taking that as like, okay, that is a better, that's a better place to be than some of the places we've been recently. And I would say even despite, I think especially the front office still has probably more faith among the fans than, than even Thibodeau does. So that has not always been the case where either the front office or the coach has inspired any confidence. So I'm going to take that as a positive. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think that the front office, yeah, it's tough to blame. I mean, in terms of the mood, the, the moves they've made, um, you know, what can you criticize, right? Tyrese Halliburton dropped, I think, 38 points last night and looks like a future star. So I get that there are fans who are, you know, who are criticizing the OB pick. Tyrese Maxey went below him, looks good. Cole Anthony looks good. You can criticize that move if you want. And then this summer, I think that Kemba move was their best shot at getting a point guard. There are a lot of fans who wanted Lonzo Ball, but that looked like that was a done deal. Um, and I'm th- sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like tampered, it was, right? So yeah, that I'm not going to kill. But maybe there was a better option than Fournier. But it's worth noting that um, there are downsides to playing for the Knicks too, right? Um, you know, how, whatever's happened with Randall, we can say that, you know, you be built for New York and all that, whatever. But the reality is a lot of players will see that and not want to experience that, right? Um, I, I look at a guy like Jalen Brunson, and I'm, you know, if Dallas doesn't want to pay him, that's fine. But I'm a little unconvinced that he would want to force his way to New York, you know, <laughs> seeing how what's happened with Julius Randle and being asked to do that instead of, you know, if Dallas loses, he's not the first fall guy. They have a guy named Luka Doncic for that. He's not really even the second fall guy a lot of the time. It's KP. So, um, so moving back to that, but beyond those two things, right. You know, criticizing that move, I do not blame them for trying to upgrade from Bullock and Payton. And you have given my reasons why there's a reason Reggie Bullock doesn't get much playing time on, on the Mavs anyway. Um, I've been generally fine. I think that what they announced this week that they want to move the vets to like start to play the younger players tells me that they're moving a little bit in that direction where it's not so much tanking, but it's the idea that if we're not getting mass um, a huge amount of benefit from playing these vets um and it's not um meaningfully changing our odds uh then why don't we play the young kids right it's for tibs maybe every inch matters but they might be at the point where at this point you know finishing with three more wins and missing the play-in isn't really a worthwhile trade-off um but i mean i think that yeah like you watch them play a game and the offense is just painful to watch and, um, you know, they, they look slow. They don't look athletic enough to match up with certain teams. And it's depressing. And then you watch Grimes play or you watch, uh, you know, OB run his ass off. You watch, um, you know, you think about all of the young guys they have, all of the assets they have. Um, how much flex, even a, like 48 people are talking about, like, that's a negative contract. I don't, A, I think it's probably more neutral than anything else. But B, like, it's three years. We don't have yeah. the fourth year. Like, Everyone else you can get off after next year. And that means actually they're going to be very valuable contracts next year. Um, so I think they're in a great place as an organization. Um, and the last thing I'll say with Tibbs, um, I wonder if this is the coach that can take you to a championship, um, given you know he seems to get the most out of his teams by getting them to play hard. But how sustainable is that? Um, I think he has a good defensive system. Um, I think the Knicks have actually played better defense after like just being awful in the beginning of the year. Um, but, you know, that slow it down style, uh, unless you have like a dominant ISO player, which the Knicks don't, it can be tough. Uh, it can be tough to win a championship with that. And even teams that go heavy ISO in the playoffs, right, in order to get the right match, it's still the chess match is still going on. I think that people are often like, there's this misconception that the playoffs is just ISO basketball and, you know, because the defenses are too good. But, no, you're still forcing the defense to do to shift 
or to switch, you're still hunting whatever advantage you can. It might in the end be an ISO, but that chess match is, is at a higher level than it ever is in the regular season. And especially on offense, there's a little bit of concern for me that Tibbs may not be that. Um, but that said, I've seen him drop some good plays too. So I'm not done with Tibbs. Um, you know, we all had had his, our frustrations with the lineups. I wish they would play faster. Um, it does. Let me ask you this though, and definitely feel free to comment on the rest of this. There's also been talk about you know, Ian Begley brought this up, right? That when Kemba was benched, um, Fournier among others, it seemed felt like there, you know, not all players were treated equally. Um, and Randall seems to be part of that. I, I don't think there's any. Be- I don't think anyone has beef with Randall in the locker room, but there certainly seemed to be some discontent, malcontent um, in the locker room because of Kemba's benching like that. Um, and you see it with the young guys, right? Like you know, if there were say what you want about people, you know, cherry picking clips of Randall not running back. What's most fr- frustrating is if Obi makes one mistake, he's out, right? Um, you know, any of the young guys, right? I think quickly has actually gotten a little bit of a longer leash. RJ has reasonably long leash, but it doesn't seem to be uniform in terms of at least effort. Um, do you think there's much, um, truth to that? And, um, do you know, do you think it's warranted or, you know, what are your thoughts on that? I think it probably is. There was a, someone posted a clip of Grimes in the Cleveland game last week, um, Grimes kind of did a, got the ball out on the sideline and ended up you know, dribbling and then took some kind of a step rack three that you don't normally take Grimes take. And it was in front of the Nick bench. And like, you, you can see it in the clip, like the instant Grimes misses the shot, Thibodeau wheels around to the bench and calls Fournier like to come in the game. And like, it wasn't, Grimes had not had like a long run. It was Thibodeau keeping him on a short leash. There's no, there's no question. Like, so I'm not in – obviously, I don't know, but what seems reasonable to me is we all know Thibodeau has a different leash. We see it. Like, you can literally see with with the young players especially, Thibodeau has a different leash than he does with some of the veterans. We can see that – I I'm not doing, like, a, a body language analysis thing at all, but the Knicks don't look like the happiest team I've ever seen at 23 and 27. They don't look miserable. They don't look out of place. But, like, they're not th- – this isn't like if, you know, if the Pelicans had gotten up to 23 and 27, like, they'd have a certain vibe and energy around them because they got off to such a bad start. If Orlando was somehow – it would look a certain way. Um, the Knicks aren't going to look that way because they're not succeeding. I think that's a chicken-egg thing. Like, I-, I don't know if they're not succeeding, and that's why – the energy looks so different from last year. Like that that's what's interesting to me. For most of the season they've been around 500. For most of last season they were around 500. A lot of the players are the same and most of the players who they brought in are people who for one reason or another wanted to be here. Like Kemba Rose was happy to come back home. Fournier, I'm sure no one else offered him a bigger deal, but like he was happy certainly to go to a place where he was valued that much. And I imagine, like, if you're an international player, especially New York, might have a certain appeal to you that Orlando does not. Um, so I think there's something there. I, have, I don't know that I would say it's significant, but I think if we on the outside, you know, you go to a business, you walk, it would take like a road trip and you walk into, like, you stop at like a McDonald's or something. And as soon as you walk in, like, it's just a different vibe than like your McDonald's at home. Like, you just know this is like, I feel like you could walk into the Knicks and know just just because we can see from the outside. Like, Thibodeau continues to play starters who all the data shows are probably the worst, like, high-usage lineup in the league. And we know Tom Thibodeau cares about winning. Like, nobody questions, like, you know, why Tom Thibodeau's there. He's there to win. So if he's there to win... He has a demonstrably different standard for the younger players in certain ways than the older players. And in the face of all the evidence, he continues to do something that sabotages their odds of winning. It has to have an effect on the inside. I'm not going to pretend to know if it's a statistically significant effect at this point. And Thibodeau still has, I think, a lot of capital built up from last season. Um, but there has to be something there. If, if anyone cares about winning which I do think they do, 
I don't think this is like a, they're just cashing their checks. Like I think this team is struggling and cares and wants to turn around. There has to be people talking, people wondering what the hell's going on. There has to yeah. be. Um, I think, um, yeah, I think that's a really good point on um, on the on the net ratings too. And and last year, the starting lineup was criticized, um, but it was at least about neutral or like a slight negative. Um, and then people could make the argument that you know allowing Rose and quickly to stay with the bench um, allowed them to beat up on bench units. Right? It becomes tougher to make that argument when the bench is beating up the bench units, but we're not, it's not just that the, the starters are, are, you know, holding or, or hitting par, right. They're getting blown out. Um, they're, the, the starters are a massive negative unit to your point. And we play them so much. And that doesn't, and you know, a lot of people will say, well, look, when this, when the bench has to play against starters, you see they struggle too. And that's not, the point is not to say that the bench all are better players than the starters, right? I think mean, that's too often, the point should be that there are probably you don't have one you don't have to do the hockey style changes right you can mix and match a little bit but two um, you know there may be things that are wrong with your starting lineup I think one of the biggest issues is um, Walker and Fournier together are defensively very exploitable uh, one is too small the other one his effort comes and goes and, and lacks foot speed right uh, and then when you add in so that last year. Um, I was not as big a fan of Alfred Payton's defense, a lot of people, but Bullock was clearly very important to the Knicks. And, you know, say what you want, but they were able to switch one to three, right? They try to switch one to three this year, and it just doesn't work. Um, and the fact that Tibbs not only has not gone away from that, but is playing those lineups more than anyone else in the league, and his only adjustment has been to, like, add in Alec Burks, it's concerning. Um, and I would I would understand why... Um, you know, that might cause um, some eyebrows to be raised. Though I'll say that I've seen teams that it really looks like players have checked out or are not bought in or disengaged from the coach, and I don't think the Knicks are close to that point right now. Yeah, I'm also going to give props to the Knicks for something that they're not doing, actually, which is not, and this has been an issue for the last few years, uh, Miles McBride and Jericho Sims have not played a ton of minutes at the NBA level, but the Knicks have been playing them a lot in Westchester, and they're not seeing the benefits of that maybe this season, but for a franchise in the past has left people wondering, like, why is Kevin Knox just sitting on the bench? Why is Frank Nilekina just sitting on the bench? Why are these various people just rotting on the bench? I, I feel good about the draft class in what Grimes has shown already this season at the, at the Knicks level and that McBride and Sims at least are getting run, not only like for their, I think it's good for their games. I think it's good for their confidence. I think it's good for their future. I think it helps the Knicks on an organizational level dealing with other franchises, because if you're not playing your young players somewhere where they can have a chance to succeed in front of others, like it can only help their value a bit more that someone might have seen Miles McBride in a in a G League game and been impressed by him. And the next time there's a trade talk with the Knicks, that person might have something positive to say. But that's that's a whole other tangent from there. I'm just glad to see the Knicks, who I don't think have have generally taken great advantage of the G League, seeming for the first time to really do so, uh, particularly in the case of McBride yeah. and Sims. Um... I think that's that's a pretty good point. Um, they are, um, you know, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a more sophisticated organization than it has been in the past, um, and uh, it wasn't just this year. Last year, I don't think they used it for quickly much, um, but I do think they were using the G League last year, um, you know, for you know two way players and that kind of thing, Theo and all of that, because um, they want guys to to be able to to show show their stuff. Um, I think that, um, you know, how much will it help? You know, and I think I've seen people say, well, why don't, why do you keep shuttling them back and forth, right? Why not just leave them in the G League? Well, that's the point of having a G League team an hour away. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can have, and because you don't want them to not practice with the team, right? I mean, I would imagine practicing against NBA players is still going to be beneficial and more so than um, playing in G League games. Um, but it, it's just, it's a more sophisticated organization, I think, top to bottom. Uh, 
I think the Cam Reddish deal, I mean, people are like, why would you trade for him if you're not going to play him? I think that they have a plan. Um, I, I think that, yeah, it just, it almost feels like the next 10 days or 11 days um, until February 10th, it just feels like there's a bit of a holding pattern because it, you know, you know that this front office is a plan. Um, we just need to, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how and why it's executed. But I think it's, it's, we've seen it, right? We've seen that they've beefed up on analytics staff. We've seen that they've beefed up scouting. Um, We see that it doesn't seem to be as many nepotism hires to, you know, I think there was talk about worldwide West. People thought that he might be that kind of hire, but a, I think he was the big voice that got them to draft quickly from that. You're on Weitzman article and B like, it seems to be like that is, you know, playing that connections and, and developing those relationships with agents. He, he is really good at that. He's the best in the business. So it's not the kind of thing you've seen in the past. And, um, it's a sophisticated organization right now, whatever, you know, struggles are happening at this moment on the court. I just have to say that I find the, it seems to me hysterical, literally hysterical, not funny, like literally hysterical. How many people are, are phased by Cam Reddish, not, like leaping into the rotation yet. First of all, just because it's Cam Reddish, like I'm excited to see what he can do also, but like this isn't Zion. This isn't like, you know, the the contender Knicks traded for John Morant and for some reason aren't using him. There is absolute, and I remember, I think it was in 2010. Yeah, 2010, the Knicks were doing like every little thing they could to get, like as much cap space as they could that summer, which ended up being ironic because, you know, Miami much more efficiently had room for three and and pulled it off. But the Knicks kept doing all these little things to like to create as much as possible. And I remember near the trade deadline, they were playing a game in Houston. And I remember watching the game and the entire game, like it was just very weird experience as a fan because they were terrible. You know, the, the game didn't matter. I was just watching the game out of concern that like anybody might get hurt and not be eligible now, like to be traded and free. Like I just watched the whole game for cap room. It was like really, 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 really weird. And I feel like when you're put in a desperate situation, shit like that happens. You would have watching for weird. You remember the game at the end of 2015 season before they got KP when they'd had the worst record, like, almost all year. It was them in Minnesota. And then Hardaway and Langston Galloway. There was a game in Atlanta late in the season, 60-win Hawk team. And Hardaway and Galloway went out of their minds from three. And the Knicks won, and everybody was pissed because that game pushed the Knicks behind Minnesota. We ended up losing um, them cat, right? So sometimes when things are bad, I'm just saying, you watch. What's that? Yeah, yeah. So sometimes you watch games for weird reasons and I'm not so I'm, I'm if you're really excited about Cam Reddish I get it like I want to watch him play also and my assumption and hope is that they traded for him with a plan to do so I'm not losing my shit that like three or four games into the Cam Reddish experience maybe I haven't seen as much of him as I would like to. yeah because like, I mean with, that. with Tibbs if he was going to take someone's spot in the rotation it was Quentin Grimes right and right now, uh, I mean, Cam Reddish has not proven to be a player who positively impacts winning so far in his career, right? That's fair to say. I wouldn't put Reddish right I now ahead of Grimes, ahead. just in terms of... Yeah, I mean, you know? Grimes is at least as reliable a shooter, much better defender. I mean, that's the thing. Reddish, he has shown that he can lock up guys. He has show, He's gotten it done in the playoffs. I, I don't think that's worth... His, his performances last year in the playoffs should not be minimized. And um, there were a lot of Hawks fans, the whole Reddish versus RJ thing. That was a point that Knicks fans probably minimize is the fact that against playoff defenses, RJ hasn't shown he can get it done yet, which is fine. But the fact that Reddish has is not to be taken lightly. But the difference is RJ brought it every night and he doesn't he doesn't make the kind of mistakes on a consistent basis that Reddish does. Um, having said that, there's a reason they made this trade. But there's the you know the parallel people draw as well. He was he wanted out of Atlanta because he wasn't getting enough playing time. Now he's not getting playing time. But in Atlanta, he was behind DeAndre, DeAndre Hunter, uh, Bogdanovich. He was behind really good players. 
who are also not that old, right? Right now he's behind Fournier and Burks, who are on the other side of 30. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I get that, right? So um, I, I think what will be interesting to see is how, how he's used. But um, I, I think that, yeah, I mean, you know, my guess is that Burks is, is going to go, uh, not because he's a problem, um, but I would imagine he has the most value and he only makes $10 million a year. Um, you know, he struggled a bit, but the fact that he can run point, I think teams will be encouraged by that. We've seen him get moved. I thought he was going to get moved last year, um, but the Knicks started to make a run. But it looked like if they were in this position last year, Burks probably would have been traded for at least a second, right? Um, I would imagine that either Kemba's going to be gone or the front office is going to... If I mean, this is something that's been floated too, right? A lot of people are saying Tibbs is playing the vets. There is, I mean, yeah, tinfoil hat and all... You know, let's go full Alex Jones. But do you think that it is the opposite? And maybe the front office is saying, um, you know, we want to be able to show that Kemba can still play. We want to show that Fournier can still play. We would like to be able to improve these guys' trade value. Do you think there's any merit to that? I do. Um, and I don't remember if we talked about this on this on this pod or not. There's a, there's a sociologist named Eric Fromm who wrote a book called The Sane Society in 19, I think, 54. And Fromm's premise was that, like, as a collective, like, Western civilization was insane. And that a lot of things that we struggle to make sense of in the world, if you if you begin off of that premise, that it's in literally an insane society making those, those decisions and taking those actions, a lot of stuff suddenly falls into place. Um... And I think when I when I've tried all year to reconcile, like like I was literally just thinking earlier in the episode, like if Thibodeau, like this question of like why why are certain players playing more than others, and it it doesn't make sense that Thibodeau, who if anything, has been criticized in his career for for seeing you know the trees too much and not the forest and wanting to win every single quarter, like these things don't make sense unless you operate from the position of like what if Thibodeau isn't defined the organizational's direction. What if like, and particularly when you have an organization where nobody talks to the public. So more than other organizations, like you don't, you don't have to tell the world, here's what we're doing and here's why we're doing it. But if you don't say anything, it leaves your, your, you know, your top people in positions to take the beating. Now, I think this is an ironic, you mentioned like, you know, people seeing what's happening with that. If, if Jalen Brunson sees what's happening, like, why would he want to come here? But one thing that I think may be unspoken about that might be, again, a, a positive sign as an organization, even if the fans or the media don't like it. When Randall decided, like, not to, he didn't want to talk to the press, the organization kept him from talking to the press. The organization took the fine. It was a $25,000 fine, which is nothing. But, like, they took the fine and they paid and Randall even thanked, I think, Dolan um, for it. And I think there's something of value to a player realizing, like, you know what? I at least see that organization is going to put me ahead of, you know, the media or ahead of, you know, league expectations. So I think, to get back to your original question, like, it could make sense that the organization is basically, like, Thibodeau knows he's protected. Like, Thibodeau knows his value and he has some capital and like he can make these decisions that don't make any sense on the surface. If he was worried about his job, if he was doing this in defiance of expectation, you know, that might be, you know, a problem or something that he would certainly be mindful of. It makes more and more sense to me to think like, this is what they want to do. And, and I don't like you kind of were got out before good. We've seen a lot of the teams where it's like, why aren't you playing you know, why is Jared Jack keep playing? Like, why does this, why does, so if that's what's happening, fine, it would be nice to know it, but I understand competitively, you know, or public relations wise, the NBA doesn't want the Knicks coming out and saying that. Like, I get it. I think, yes, I think there is something to that. I think, I, I think it makes more sense than almost any of the like angry venting Twitter theories that try to get at like, Okay, Thibodeau is suddenly a moron, or no? I think this is probably. Yeah, and I mean, I I, like I think there are some things that are really him. Uh, I do think the you know, 
like the fascination with Alec Burks at point guard. I think that stubbornness, that might be a real tips thing, right? But, um, you know, continuing to play Kemba is different. We know that he benched Kemba early already this year, right? Uh, Kemba hasn't been great. Um, and playing Kemba and Fournier, I would imagine those kinds of things. Kemba and Fournier together, um, those kinds of things are less a Tibbs issue, right? So I think it's probably a mix of both, but, um, but we'll see. And I mean, if, you know, if come February 10th, everyone is still here and February 20th, the Knicks are falling further and farther out, but none of the young guys are getting minutes. Cam Reddish is still on the bench. I'll happily take that L, but um, yeah. I had, I right now believe that there is a plan to uh, clear the path a little bit, so. And kind of on yeah, a related note, do you think if it um, turns out that that's the direction they go, the Knicks are in the midst of a very um, – that day they actually play uh, Golden State. And before that, it's a very tough stretch. Um, not only the trade deadline, but do you think there's a chance they just shut down Derrick Rose for the season if they're not going to be – because you know, it's a mixture of things. It's not just the Knicks being worse than expected or you know, their, their optimistic expectations, but also most of the rest of the conference has gotten really good. Um, so making that climb to even a play in is not trivial. Um, you know, do you think there's a possibility they, they shut down? Um, yeah. Do you think they, they kind of just say, yeah, we're not competing this year. Like Derek Rose, just get healthy. That would be interesting. Um, we haven't seen this regime in that position yet. Um, my initial instinct would be to say no. Because I feel like Rose, as a competitor who is now 30-something, I think he's 33. Um, I'm not sure that Derrick Rose at this stage of his life is going to want to take the games off, even if he should long-term. Because I think maybe as a competitor, he's just going to want to play any time that he can and feels that, like, he'll have something to contribute, whether it's, you know, tangible points, rebounds, assists, or whether it's just playing with the younger players. and Because and, we, we've seen and heard a lot about Rose's success um, and and desire to like be a part of mentoring young players. So I think that, coupled with Thibodeau, in particular Thibodeau with Rose, like I think he, you know, if Thibodeau ever got married, Rose would be his best man. Like I assume he wants him out there like all the time as much as possible. So... My guess would be no, that they wouldn't bench him. I had never considered that until you just mentioned it. And if they do make moves at the deadline, you know, that certainly seems like the smarter long-term play. Assuming they're sellers at the deadline, right? So, Assuming, yeah. But I, I do feel like you said that everything seems to point toward, to me, like something's coming. Some kind of two-for-one or, or something. I don't see them going the last 32 games with this group, like something's going to happen. Um, Yeah. And I mean, with Rose, I also mentioned, it does seem like the recovery has been not quite as straightforward as originally hoped for. Um, And since that's a player who's Mm -hmm. obviously very important in the Knicks future and has, you know, has dealt with injuries. um, That's what I wonder. Um, Do you think that, do you think that it'll be end up being the Knicks, you know, selling selling for picks and maybe a young player here or there, but doing that with Kemba and, and Burks and maybe even Fournier, or do you think that there's something like Randall could get moved for like a De'Aaron Fox or something? Um, cur- and, you know, do you think that's all determined by the next few games? Curious in your thoughts there. I'm struggling with the Randall stuff because it's like, you know, how in the NFL, the irony of like when the owner puts out a public statement of support for the coach. That's why you know the coach is in trouble. Um, I can't tell from, you know, Randall issued a statement again the other day, and it it sounded very nice and good. Um, I assume he was probably strongly encouraged to release the statement because of the the vibe and then just the coverage going around the team. But um, so I would have told you until very recently, like I think there's no way that they would trade Randall. Um, because I think the Knicks for more organizations than most, it sets up an interesting question. I think for most organizations, you know, you can make a move, realize like kind of fairly quickly, like, oh, that's turned around 
and and pivot to a new direction and it's fine. I think the Knicks have to be careful because unless it's a slam dunk, like you can trade Randall for, you know, Cade Cunningham straight up. Like unless it's something like that, which isn't going to happen, I think the Knicks more than most organizations have to be careful about, again, appearing like the plan is always a quickly shifting plan. Because to go from like, hey, Randall, that was great. Here's a well, here's a four-year extension, and then literally you're halfway through the year one. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna go in a direction. Like I think the Knicks need to be more mindful than other organizations of what message that sends, particularly if it's not a slam dunk deal, which for a lot of reasons, I don't think Darren Fox is. I've come around a bit more on the Fox deal. I was initially like I think a hundred percent opposed to it. Randall's struggles. Not only as on the floor, where like I think it's possible, like you said, like last year might be the best that it gets. You know, like um, it's harder. It's it's always harder to be excellent multiple times. I don't know if this is still the case, but for for the longest time ever, the record for assists in a game was Scott Skiles, who had like twenty eight or something like that, thirty, thirty maybe. The record for points in a playoff quarter was Sleepy Floyd, who had like 35 or 36 against the Lakers. You don't think of those names because, and 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 there's a there was an old New York City point guard in the 80s. He played on the Pacers in the 90s and a few other teams named Vern Fleming. Um, Vern Fleming stands out in my mind just because when I bought basketball cards as a kid, every pack seemed to have like three Vern Flemings. Like they just made a billion Vern Fleming cards. So he was he was stuck in my head. And I was doing research for another pod a few months ago and I happened to look up Vern Fleming for the hell of it and saw that Vern Fleming was once NBA player of the week. Like, you would never guess Vern Fleming is NBA. But my point of all this is, like, we, we were used to thinking the most... We were used to spending... The majority of our sports brain is spent thinking and talking about the best of the best, which I think biases, biases us toward... Um, in affiliation between excellence and like repetition or length when the reality is most players can be excellent for a week or a game or a season, but it's much rarer. Um, we don't, we don't celebrate, you know, Tom Gugliotta making one all-star game or two all-star games, but like that's more common than Tim Duncan making, you know, 18 in a row. So Randall might be just what we, what, what we're seeing this year is closer to what Randall did. His first year, there are differences. The three-point shooting's a little bit better. Um, I think he's getting to he the line. He as a passer. Level, like, whatever. Turning the ball over the same, but he's making more he's assists. Improved. So, Yeah. But, like, the guy who's 24, 10, and 6, and 41% from three, that's awesome for a season. We may never see that again. In which case, like, you've talked about this in earlier episodes – it's fair to question not only what is your ceiling with Randall. Like, even if Randall was what he was last year, every year, you know, for, for five years, what's the ceiling of that player? Um, on top of that, you've talked also about, like, it's not just how good Randall is, and this is where I think the Fox trade becomes really interesting. It's also about the fit of other people. So building a team around kind of a, a mellow, light, jumbo wing in the body of a power forward who's a good passer but not great so like maybe not someone you want having the ball as much as a Jokic um and a good shooter but not you know Carmelo level where like it's worth um the isos and stuff maybe he's worth trading but my my concerns with Fox as a deal specifically I think there's a few things there that are really concerning one is it puts immediately a lot of pressure on three young players who haven't been tested in that way. It puts pressure immediately on Toppin because now Toppin goes from everybody's favorite yep. backup quarterback. And Toppin's very specifically like, um, oh, who was that? The Jets used to have a an option quarterback who only came in to run like little gadget plays and third down plays. I can't believe I can't think of his name now. He was great. I think he was there when, maybe when Parcells was there. But, like, that was his old job. He came in, third down, funky options, and then he's done. That's Obi. 
I don't know. Was it Ray Lucas? Like I, I didn't know until I looked this up the other Ray night. Lucas started at one point. Yeah, maybe but... Ray Maybe Ray Lucas, but I it might have been Ray. I was I thought it was someone else, but maybe it was Ray Lucas. Um so you know, if you if you if you make the deal for Fox and you bring him in, Toppin, I didn't know this till last night. Toppin's only played more than thirty minutes once in a game in his entire NBA career. So anybody who claims to like know what what he's going to bring, you don't. You have no idea how he's going to respond to that. He could be great. Um, I don't know that he's just inherently as good of a rebounder as Randall is, and I, I worry about like that on the glass. And I worry also about if you put Toppin in that. I mean, Toppin. This applies to Fox too, but like if you want to run Randall out of town for his shooting, Toppin and Fox have never proven even to be at Randall's level. I know Toppin hasn't had the opportunity, but, you know, Toppin's hot as hell lately from three, and he's at, like, 24%. Fox has been at 25% all season. Um, I think you put a lot of pressure on Toppin if you make that move, and if he struggles with it, not only are you now struggling, but you've devalued one of your assets right now that probably has the most appeal to other people. It puts a ton of pressure on RJ. Because now in that lineup, there's even less shooting because Fox can't shoot as well as Kemba or or Rose or I would say probably quickly. Um, and RJ now has to go from being like a secondary to, to kind of the lead. I mean, Fox would certainly take his share of shots also, but um, it puts a lot more pressure on RJ. And again, he might answer the call and be ready to go. And this could be one of those like, Dave DeBusher moves where addition by subtraction, but also he might struggle with it. And if he does, again, not only does it hurt you on the floor, but it devalues potentially an asset if you want to think of it that way. And thirdly, and my biggest concern is with De'Aaron Fox himself, De'Aaron Fox has never shown, and, and it's not like he's had a ton of opportunity, but De'Aaron Fox has never shown that he can take a team any farther than Julius Randle did last season. And, when Fox has struggled, Fox has struggled in Sacramento, where really, other than those fans, nobody notices and nobody cares. Yeah. I don't think Fox is a good enough defensive player to override my concerns that, like, he can't really shoot well. If he doesn't shoot well, that li- his assists are way down this year. His assist rate is down. Um, I think because probably he's easier to play off of because he can't shoot. And lastly, on top of that, um, Fox's entire, I think, main appeal is built on his speed. I don't need De'Aaron Fox, you know, having an MCL strain and he comes back at 85% and he's still a very good point guard, you know, in, or I don't know. I mean, he's so dependent to me on his physical gifts that if you take them away at all, I don't want to be stuck with that contract for like four or five years, hoping he turns it around as a shooter. I have, I don't want to do that. Now, what do you think of as far as the benefits of Fox? Cause you've talked a lot about fit and like just the fact that Fox is a, a point guard might be addition by subtraction also, because it might just put other players in a position to succeed because he just might straight up be better at working. Yeah. With him than yeah. So um, I think that um, with Fox, I think you made a lot of good points. Um, I do think shot diet matters a little bit more than raw percentages. Um, so Julius is has been down, even though he's not really taking a ton of unassisted threes. He's taking a lot of open spot-up threes, and he's missing those. Uh, De'Aaron Fox is about 35% on spot-up threes this year, and he was at 39 last year. So he's not a bad shooter if you just pass him the ball. And he's, what he's really bad at is pull-up. And because he runs so many pick-and-rolls, he has to take those, and he's not a good pull-up shooter at all. Um, I think that's a fair concern. But he is at least not someone, not to go at the punching bag again, but he's not Alfred Payton where he cannot, like, if the defenses leave him open, he can't hit a three, right? So at least if he's playing off RJ, that is less of a concern to me. Um, I think he should be the most dynamic pick-and-roll player the Knicks ha- would have, uh, and that should help Obi. Um, a little bit more than, than he's gotten. Um, so, again, I'm talking about the pros because I do think I lean with you, um, also because I think there's a better option if we were to move Randall. 
uh, and you know another team was interested. But um, so those are the two things. Um, and I think that the last thing is you talk about the speed, but the reality is the Knicks have one player who can actually just blow by a guy, right? And he is um, he is I mean you can't count on his health, right? But Derrick Rose is the only guy. Screen or no screen, he can just get to the rim and get you a bucket no matter what. Um, you know, other players quickly has good speed, but uh, especially going to his left, he feels that he struggles to turn the corner and he has to rely on craft at the rim. Um, you know, De'Aaron Fox is an incredible finisher. Not only does he have speed, but he's a vertically very good gifted athlete and he's got great touch at the rim. He's consistently been in the upper 60s. So you look at all those things, and then you have to ask, is it worth $30 plus million? That's where I think that I, I lose it, because um, out of college, he was a terrific passer. To your point, he's not that great a passer now. He would be something like Rose. Um, functionally, he's probably still better because he can just open up more opportunities with his speed. Uh, he's aloof on defense, and I think he has the tools to be good on that end, but that hasn't been shown. Uh, again, you're making a huge bet at $30 million. Randall is also bet at $30 million. So why I would do that one for one swap is that if I'm betting on one of them, I will bet on the 23 year old um, with fantastic gifts, the ability to get to the rim and finish at an elite level. Um, especially because a lot of the weaknesses we talked about with Fox apply to Randall too. Um, and I think it's at least, especially on defense, it's harder to hide someone at the four who's not a very good defender than it is to hide someone at the point of attack. Particularly when you know Fox is good size. That said, I would prefer to trade for if we're moving Randall. I'd prefer to trade um, Jalen Brunson, um, a trade for Jalen Brunson. All right. In general, I think I would prefer that move, especially since Brunson wants about twenty million dollars a year. Um, even if he got a little bit more than that, if he got like the Fred Van Fleet contract, you know, that's still twenty-one. That's still ten, twelve million dollars cheaper than De'Aaron Fox. And he's giving you better defense, better shooting. He's not a great shooter. Um, and he's actually an elite finisher, despite being only about 6'1", 6'2". Um, he was shooting, I think um, Jack Huntley posted this, I think like 71% at the rim, which is, I think, the same as... The, it's, it's second in the league after Giannis, I think. Um, so, for cleaning the glass. So, um, he's... Um, especially, and I think that, that might be unassisted. Um, I would imagine that there's bigs. But the point is, that's the kind of finisher he is. And that's supposed to be the big part of, of Fox's value. Now, he probably doesn't do quite the volume, but he's a better shooter. He can score from three levels. He can get a shot. He's a good enough passer, although you'd like him to improve a little bit there. Uh, and he'll be cheaper. Um, so that's the direction I would go. But if if the only move that was available was a straight one-for-one -one swap of Randall and Fox, I would do that. Yeah, I got to tell you that I've been... I've only seen you know a little bit of Brunson. I know everyone talks about him, and um, all I really knew about him was that not all that I knew about him, but I my concern inherently about him was that I was like, well, he doesn't look like he's like a great three point shooter, but he's fine for his career, and he's astonishingly good at basically every level of the mid range yeah. through his career. He's also pretty strong, um, so like smaller guards, he can actually back them down and then shoot the mid range over them. So. Mm. Is there a reason, I, I think I might have been wrong about this. I thought until very recently that his contract was something where Dallas, is that Dallas is limited in terms of what they can pay him? Or is it just that Dallas would have to go like into the luxury tax? It's the latter. Um, because they, so he is unrestricted. Okay. Um, and so they have bird yeah. rights. So they can go 30% over um, to sign him. Um the problem with that is that um, you know, so they also have to sign Dorian Finney-Smith, and they don't really want to lose either. And Finney-Smith should be in the low teens in terms of the salary commands. So they do want to avoid the luxury tax. Um, and this is just not a very – and these are the kinds of – this is why the Knicks hired Brock Aller. Um, you know, these are the kinds of moves where the Knicks can try to use their leverage. Um, if I was the Mavericks, I would probably, you know – I would tell, I would thank Dorian Finney-Smith for his service. Um, but they do lack, you know, they have Josh Green. They have uh, Mr. French Prince, Frank Nilakina. 
but uh, you can't really have enough wings who can switch, uh, especially when you have um, Luka Doncic, who um, you know isn't the the best defender. He's a solid defender, I think, but um, you know, but he's asked to do so much on offense. You want those wings that you can really throw at guys like um, Paul George and LeBron and that. Um, so they're in a tough spot. That's the real, the main thing. Um, and if Jalen Brunson, if someone is willing to pay him four for a hundred or four for 88 or something like that, um, you know, they might, you're, you're at that point, they, you know, Luca's getting a max, um, you know, you're investing that much money in, you know, in two players, uh, and both in the backcourt plus KP, right. And, and Hardaway is on a big deal. I think that if they really want to keep Brunson, there are machinations they can make. And I would expect them to do that. But, um, you know, there's been a lot of smoke about that being a thing. So we'll see. So the Knicks head into a bit of a tricky week. They host Sacramento Monday night. Then they host Memphis on Wednesday. Yes, Memphis on Wednesday. And then they open a five-game West Coast swing Saturday national game at LA. That will be exciting. Um, so that's all for this week. We will surely catch up with you again fairly soon. Um, Stacey Patton, thank you as always for your time and your insights. And everybody out there, Matthew Miranda saying goodbye and talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.